Welcome to the first episode of Post-Pandemic. I'm Courtney Carthy. Each episode, we look at a specific part of society, culture, or the world and ask a guest to imagine what that might be like after it's all said and done. I came across Corey Doctorow when he edited the blog boingboing.net. I think about 10 years ago, he's a science fiction writer, works for the Electronic Frontiers Foundation, an MIT Media Lab research affiliate, and a lot more. Paraphrasing a quote of his I heard on ABC Radio a few years back, for me, this very much crystallized the importance of privacy, uh, particularly on the internet. It was a scenario he posed when a child in the future asks a parent, how did you perfect morality in the first decade of the 21st century? Plenty of links in the episode notes, as there will be for each one ahead. But for Corey, you can head to his website, craphound.com. That's craphound.com. Corey Doctorow, thank you so much for your time here on Post Pandemic. Hiya, uh, lovely. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm in Melbourne and uh, you're in Los Angeles here in Melbourne. We had somebody on a, a, a paddleboard socially distancing in the bay here, um, but was fined by the Victoria Police for uh, breaching um, whatever sort of laws we've got at the moment that, that restrict our movements. Have, have you seen anything in Los Angeles that seems a little bit out of place or could sort of only happen during coronavirus? We had effectively the same thing. We had a, a surfer handed a $1,000 fine for uh, going in the sea and then telling the lifeguard who told him he wasn't allowed to to go fuck himself. And the cop showed up and, um, and handed him a $1,000 fine. Okay, for obscenity or um, social distancing or just whatever they could? Uh, I think it was for, like, defying a lawful order or something, you know, some, something on those lines that, you know, I think that um, the, the public safety rules are such that uh, when a lifeguard tells you to do a thing, you're allowed to, I think you're allowed to tell them to, to F off or whatever. You just still have to do it, right? <laughs> you're, you, it's... it's uh, you know, it's in the same way that if they say there are sharks over there and you're not allowed to go there, you can say, I think you're an idiot and I love sharks, but you're still not allowed to go there. So I expect it was something on those lines. I don't know that it was like a sui generis, um, uh, sui generis uh, uh, coronavirus order. It, it might have been just, you know, a commoner garden uh, public safety bylaw. Well, uh, let's get stuck into the questions because we're not so restricted here on the podcast. Uh, question one, what do you think will be the main difference after the pandemic? So to answer that question, I have to say a little about how I think about predictions, which is to say I really loathe predictions uh, because I think that I, I think that um, predictions are intrinsically fatalistic in the sense that they imply that there isn't room for human agency. You know, I, I, I like the way that... Um, the coronavirus modeling has worked, despite the fact that it gives you some anxiety, because the coronavirus modeling best understood is like, here is what we think might happen if we do X and Y. Here's what might happen if we do X, Y, and Z. And if we do none of them, here's what we think might happen as well. And so I, I, I firmly believe that coronavirus is changing what is and isn't possible uh, but uh, it, it's not foreordained what will happen. Uh, it, can I be a little discursive here? 
Sure. Uh, so I have a colleague, Ada Palmer, who's a, an historian and science fiction writer. She studies um, Renaissance, uh, Florence, and the Inquisitions and the uh, propagation of, of forbidden knowledge, um, homosexuality, heresy, uh, apostasy, uh, Satanism, just all that, all that awesome stuff. And uh, she's tenured at the University of Chicago, which lets her do really weird things. And among them is that she... Um, Every year has her students participate in a four week long live action role playing reenactment of the election of the Medici's Pope, uh, in which everyone is assigned legitimate historic personages uh, and given their bios and told to act out their priorities. And they do this, you know, by text message and, and in person and what have you. And uh, Ada has a uh, an alert. Uh, open on Google for local theater companies that are selling off costumes. So when the thing comes to its end, everyone gets a Renaissance Italian costume and they gather in a big room and they decide who's going to be Pope. And every year, two of the final four candidates are always the same, but two of them have never been the same. And this is a really excellent way of thinking about prediction and history, right? There are great forces of history at work that prefigure or define the room for human action within them, right? That the, there was always going to be those two people. But within the parameters set by the great forces of history, there is human agency, right? What, what we do changes outcomes. So I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist because both of those yield up the future to the great forces of history and discount to nothing the value of human agency. I'm a great believer in, in human agency. That's the part that I, that I work on. And so that is all my like long winded way of saying, I don't want any of what I'm uh, about to say taken as a prediction, but rather as like a scenario, a thing we might work towards or work against. And I think that we can divide all the future scenarios into two great buckets. The first one is exterminism, right? The, the belief that the lesson of the uh, pandemic is that there's just too many of us and we can't support them all. That, that um, really what we need to do is get rid of all the olds and all the poors and everyone with a disability because they are just a, a, a ventilator, uh, a claim on a ventilator waiting to be made, right? A reservoir of a horrible pathogen. Um, and, and the idea that, uh, governments, you know, having been starved of capital for 40 neoliberal years have, uh, then failed to rise to the challenge, which means that governments couldn't have risen to the challenge and we can just dispense with them altogether and have a kind of, uh, you know, neo-feudal post-capitalist, uh, uh, you know, dystopia, right? So that is one of the things that might come out of it. You, you know, you could call it the Tony Abbott future, Right. And then there's another future, and that's the future where we say, goodness me, it turns out that allowing markets to allocate uh, public health priorities and um, to allocate uh, infrastructure investment and allocate uh, for network investment is um, catastrophic failure. And that uh, what we really need is to allocate these things on the basis of a longer term view than markets will yield up. And that that means that markets should be relegated to being a mere tool in our toolbox and not a uh, the the overarching mechanism by which we uh, uh, decide all of our public policies, nor an arbiter of of public worth. Right. That, that anything, you know, that syllogism that says that anything that markets reward is is 
uh, uh, you know, canonically good. If it wasn't good, markets wouldn't reward it. And instead, we, we just view markets as just a thing that we can use when we need them. Uh, you know, in the same way that a carpenter might have a hammer and a screwdriver in their toolbox. And, you know, we would look askance at a carpenter who said, you know, you need to understand that people who use screwdrivers, those people are crazy totalitarians. I would never use a screwdriver. Whatever it is, it's going together with this hammer. And if a hammer can't put it together, it shouldn't exist, right? And that, that's been the economics profession for 40 years. I think, I think the, the scenario that I'd like to work towards is one in which we sunset that narrow, uh, um, belligerent ideological view of how we do allocation in favor of one that's more centered on realpolitik and one that, you know, for example, takes, takes notice and recognition of the fact that we were able to flush trillions of dollars into the economy without creating runaway inflation because the state was procuring things that the private sector didn't want, like the labor of people who weren't allowed to work. And it's only when the state procures things that, that the private sector is trying to buy that you end up with bidding wars, and that's what gives you inflation. Well, then, living through this at the moment, it must be fascinating for you to see the, you know, the real live-action role-play of um, you know, the pandemic playing out and human agency operating within that context, right? Yeah, indeed. You know, like, like we are seeing just tremendous possibilities and also tremendous brittleness, right? One of the, the, the thing about a crisis is it applies pressure and, uh, accelerates the, uh, existing processes. And a lot of processes are only tenable because they're slow. You know, if you think about the, the crises, uh, that have been unfolding in slow motion, like the climate crisis. Um, the climate crisis is only really possible because it's not immediate, right? If, if every time you dredged, you know, a harbor on the Gold Coast, coast to allow for a coal barge, you know, all of Queensland caught fire, then you would stop dredging the harbor, right? But the fact that there isn't like a neat causal relationship that you can point to that's unequivocal, gives space for merchants of doubt to do their mischief and also creates a legitimate question about which actions we should take to offset the harms, which, which are the most effective and which are the, which are the least effective and how we should order our priorities. You know, you might think of it as being like, um, like, uh, tobacco and smoking cessation, right? If, if every cigarette gave you a tumor, you would not smoke cigarettes and you know, if a light cigarette gave you tumors at half the rate of a regular cigarette, but in real time, right? So it took two light cigarettes to give you a tumor as opposed to one. Or if snus or, or some other, uh, you know, smokeless tobacco gave you a tumor for every three uses instead of every one, we would be able to actually make definitive statements about the relative risks and harms of different tobacco products. But those long fuses uh, between smoking and cancer and other health problems. Obviously, emphysema is a big one right now as people's lungs are shutting down. Um, that's what makes it particularly hard to understand those relationships. But what we're getting through now is an extremely accelerated account, right? A, a reckoning with the choices that we've made, right? What does it mean, you know, in California where I live, uh, we allocated $200 million to building out an emergency pandemic response capacity in 2006, 
We we bought um, thousands of battery powered ventilators. Uh, we stockpiled millions of N95 masks. We built two complete ready to assemble prefabricated hospitals, and we created the materiel to to add 27,000 hospital beds in school gymnasiums and community halls across the country on a moment's notice. And then after the 2008 crisis, when we bailed out the bankers but not the people, uh, the state had a giant shortfall. And the $5 million or so it was costing us every year to maintain that readiness was deemed inessential, and we sunset the program, right? So it was hard to evaluate in 2008 what the potential cost would be of deciding that we had literally trillions of dollars to bail out the banks, but not $2 million a year to maintain a state of readiness for a pandemic. Now we know. Right now we know. Now we know what it means to say to monopolistic cable operators, um, we are going to allow the market to decide, uh, you know, what kind of internet service we're going to have, uh, and we are going to allow you to make decisions about how people can participate in the digital world because we think that'll be optimal. We now know what the consequence of that is. Right, that it's a that it's a catastrophe and a disaster. It was harder to make those inferences when the consequences were spread out over a lot of time and space. But when, for example, the entire educational system in a city shuts down because the students can't do distance ed, the manifest inadequacy of the private sector provisioning high-speed broadband is so obvious that you can literally see it from orbit. And so I have hope that when this crisis passes, we will be able to use those lessons to revisit some of those slow motion catastrophes and sh and view them through this lens of a high speed, high pressure catastrophe to uh, allow us to open policy space to revisit the choices that we made that gave us this future that we're living in. Mm. Well, let's hope some of those are, are you know are applied at least um, to other problems, the slow motion sort of train crash. But um, it just out of curiosity, could you could you give a brief description of the um, internet situation there in Los Angeles? The, it's it's hard to get a clear picture not living um, through it. I mean, Australia has some reasonable competition, I'd, I'd say, I think it's fair to say. But could you just describe what the, like the market for, purchasing a utility like the internet is like in los angeles just briefly yeah it's very poor and, and i should point out that though i live in los angeles county the city i live in is burbank it's a it's a, i can see los angeles the city of los angeles city limit from my door but i yeah. live in a different political unit and and burbank uh is is distinctive in that it's got um two main industrial sectors one is aerospace this was the the home of lockheed during world war ii and it was really the uh, birthplace of the American aerospace industry. And even though Lockheed is long gone, there are a lot of aerospace and aerospace related supply chain companies in the region. And then the other one is the studios. So I can walk from my front door to Disney, Warner and Universal. Uh, and um, that uh, combination of industries, which are, are both very network intensive, drove the city to allocate, I think it was $100 million dollars for a 100 gigabit broadband uh, fiber loop that runs uh, all through the city. It actually passes underneath the foundation slab of my house. But at the hmm. same time, a company called Charter, uh, a cable operator that we joke only exists to make its main competitor uh, Comcast look good because they are so unbelievably bad, has the, um, has the uh, monopoly franchise to provide cable-based broadband 
to uh, Burbankers, to residential premises. Uh, and AT&T, our monopoly telecoms carrier, has an all-copper infrastructure with which it provides DSL services. And these cap out in the kind of notionally at like 300 megabits per second. Practically speaking, we get about 80. Uh, and um, we have frequent brownouts and blackouts of our internet as well. And because of the exclusive franchise that Charter has, we are uh, not allowed to terminate the fiber that passes under our foundation slab in our home. Despite the fact that I run a small business from my home, I pay small business tax for it in my home. I um, am not in a res in a commercially zoned premises, and that's the nature of the deal that Burbank has with this carrier. So we don't really have much competition, right? You have AT and T and you have Charter, uh, but neither of them are responsive to prices, right? So not neither of them have have lowered prices in the years that I've lived here, despite the fact that um, both of them are offering uh, products that are getting measurably worse over time. In fact, they, they've raised their prices. And that's the formal definition of a monopoly. It's not when you only have one company that serves a market. It's when uh, a company can sell products without being responsive to uh, price signals from the market, that they get to set their own pricing irrespective of market conditions. And, and both of them do. Uh, and, you know, the argument for this has been kind of incoherent. But a big part of it has been that broadband is a luxury item and not, as you called it, a utility. Well, it's becoming very, very clear uh, that it is absolutely a utility. I mean, I live with an executive from one of those movie studios. She is currently in her office on broadband doing her job, keeping the economy of this uh, of this city alive. And if it wasn't for the broadband, the city would just be flushed down the toilet. Uh, and yeah. so... You know, this is this is a um, a really bad situation. Charter has done some terrible things since the the beginning of the crisis. Um, the owner of Charter, the CEO rather of Charter, decreed from the very beginning that back office workers, including those who could work from home, must come to the office, though no protective equipment would be made available to them because he didn't believe that they would work as efficiently if he couldn't keep an eye on them. Uh, and then his Ooh. field workers who enter our homes, right, who, who come into our homes and who are both exposed to us and expose us to them, they are not given any protective equipment either, and, and nor have they been given any bonuses, you know, which, which among other things, it's not just about compensating them for risk, but bonuses are what might allow a, a worker to rent a second premises so they could keep their family safe. Uh, if they're entering a bunch of strangers' homes during the day to keep their broadband rolling. Um, they haven't mm. been given any bonuses, and instead what they've been allocated is a $25 gift voucher for a chain restaurant, uh, uh, and all of the restaurants that the vouchers are for are closed for the duration of the crisis. Many of them will likely never reopen. Uh, and so that's the, that's where we get our broadband from, this, this catastrophic disaster of a company, right? A, a, a company that is really like if you if I wrote one into a novel, people would accuse me of broad satire. Uh, and there they are, right? They are providing our lifeline to our economic life, our financial life, our family life, our uh, educational life, uh, and uh, and and um, you know healthcare as well. All of our medicine right now is telemedicine. I'm seeing my orthopedist tomorrow for my hip arthritis. I'm seeing him by video conference, uh, and so all of that is now in the hands of this monopolistic basket case of a company that in any, you know, reasonable competitive market would have been bankrupt and a bad memory 10 years ago. 
<laughs> what a, what a character for a sort of you know uh, dystopian sort of future. <laughs> well, indeed, right? You know, but here's the thing, right? Uh, if you if you read Thomas Piketty and Capital in the 21st Century, you know his thesis based on his his very exhaustive uh, research that he and his ten grad students took ten years to assemble, or fifteen grad students ten years to assemble, is that um, a, as capital concentrates into fewer and fewer hands policy becomes more and more attuned to their parochial needs and not to the public good and that this builds up a kind of policy debt where bad decisions create bad outcomes and those bad outcomes get so bad that eventually you have some kind of collapse he describes the world wars as being one of those uh also the manumission of enslaved people in america and 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 the great depression and so on and that following those great crises uh there is so much capital destruction that the ability of the monopolists and the plutocrats to uh, l- to lobby to uh, prolong bad policy that serves their parochial needs is is uh, kneecapped, right? Because they just don't have as much money anymore. And then you get what you know the French call the thirty glorious years, the the post war years during which the world's welfare states were created and unrivaled prosperity came to the world because we were making policy based on what people needed rather than based on what would make rich and powerful people more rich and powerful. And, you know, one of the outcomes of this crisis is probably going to be that the cable operators will end up hemorrhaging a lot of red ink. And if they have more red ink, they'll have less money to spend on lobbying. And if they have less money to spend on lobbying, then maybe we can finally start pulling the fiber from our fiber loop here in Burbank straight into people's homes so that we can get it right on our curb and uh, plug into that 100 gigabit network. And if uh, anybody listening is interested in Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, there'll be listed a link in the show notes. So check that out there after this um, or where you're listening now. Question two, and I think this sort of goes into, um, may link up to what we've been talking about already. What do you think will become obsolete? What will become obsolete? Gosh, that's a good question. I don't know about obsolescence, but I think some ideas that might be sunset as a consequence of this is the idea, for example, that um, you can do everything you need on a mobile phone, right? So I think this might reverse the obsolescence of PCs because the ineffectiveness of mobile phones for um, creating as as well as consuming media uh, is becoming more and more obvious. Uh, you know, my daughter, who's, you know, a little bit of a canary in a, in a coal mine here, she's, you know, 12 years old. And, and although she has a laptop, she's, she only uses it for school historically. She's now really using that laptop a lot more as well as email and so on, because, uh, she has to do computing tasks that mobile devices are just not up to the, uh, up to, uh, uh providing her with the infrastructure for. Her. So I, I think that maybe we'll see a resurgence of, of laptops and of PCs, uh, and a slowing, uh, not a slowing of mobile adoption, but a, um, maybe an, an end to the pernicious story that mobile devices, mobile phones are, are do everything your laptop did, uh, but fit in your pocket. Question three, what will be different in your daily life following, um, I suppose the worst of what we're experiencing now, well, uh, you know, maybe, maybe in, you know, one to two years even. Well, I mean, again, this is all about scenarios and not predictions. So, for example, uh, there's a scenario 
in which uh, all three of the books that I have coming out this year tank because there are no bookstores to sell them in and that my publisher goes with them uh, along with maybe a couple more. I mean, there's only five publishers left in the world. Uh, and, and rumor has it that, uh, you know, the digger is going to buy, um, Simon and Schuster and reduce it to four even before the crisis. So, um, you know, it might be the end of my writing career, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, whether or not the entertainment industry survives, whether or not my, my wife's employer survives is also going to be extremely salient. Uh, we might end up moving back to Canada where I'm from if, um, if that happens because we would lose our health care. So, you know, that's kind of the, that's the worst case. The best case is that we figure it out, right? That we end up with a bunch of stimulus, that we end up with a revived uh, anti-monopoly uh, uh, trend in our politics that breaks up the five publishers into 50, that uh, stops Amazon's predatory conduct and allows publish, uh, bookstores, independent booksellers to thrive, that we do, you know, massive Keynesian infusions that uh, allow the bookstores that are currently furloughing all of their employees to reopen, that we institute universal health care, and that means that we don't have to worry about leaving the country to go somewhere else because I, I have chronic ailments, and without health care, I literally couldn't survive here, um, and so on. So it's really it's really up in the air, and it, and it all depends on just how weak the grip of the super-rich is after this and whether or not we can make uh, policies that are pluralistic and evidence-based instead of parochial. I will tell you one piece of hope that I have for what might come after this and what make what might make my life better too, as well as yours and everyone else's, is that in that pickheady framework where we don't get change until we have a crisis that breaks the stranglehold of the rich, I had been despairing because uh, the only crisis that I could see on the horizon that was of sufficient magnitude to open that space for us here was um, climate crisis. And the climate crisis is slow moving, but also exponential. And my fear that was that by the time we got to the point where we were willing to address it, we would be too late to do anything about it, that, that it would be just too close to the inflection point where it was too late. And it may be that shattering the grip of the super rich through coronavirus is the thing that allows us to have the policy space to do something about climate change before it does us in for good. And so that might be where we're at, right? In a, in a year or two years, I might be working in a revitalized activist uh, tendency that was built around restructuring our economy around a Green New Deal uh, and uh, a sustainable uh, response to climate change that actually um, takes into account the, the scope of climate change, the scope of the challenge ahead of us, the risk that we face as a civilization and as a species, and, and, and really manages it with the gravity that it deserves, which, if anything, is more gravity than coronavirus has offered. I mean, coronavirus merely threatens to kill, I don't know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people worldwide, um, it, it, you know, which would be a giant civilizational challenge for generations to come, whereas the, uh, the climate crisis will, in you know, the lifetime of my daughter or her child, uh, effectively end civilization unless we take action. And so maybe we'll get the kind of action that we've been long militating for. Maybe we'll get something better out of this. That's a great answer to, uh, as well, question four, which is what positives do you see coming from coronavirus? So on to question five, how do you think you'll describe the pandemic to somebody in the future that didn't experience it? So I imagine that... You know, 
that would be somebody who's possibly being born now or somebody 20 years down the track who's uh, who's yet to be yet to be born well I, I mean the way that uh, the, uh, the the precedent I have for thinking about this is how my uh, grandparents talked about the war you know my grandmother was a child civil defense worker during the siege of Leningrad um, so she was you know hauling corpses and uh, and, and ammo and you know witnessing cannibalism and and so on. And she kind of had two modes of talking about it. One was to just say, you don't understand and you'll never understand. And, uh, and, you know, the trauma was so enduring for her that she, she didn't really, it was hard for her to talk about it with us as well. She, that, that she was very short on details. Um, and then towards the end of her life, I think she acquired a kind of urgency to pass on what she had learned from the crisis and to discuss it with us more frankly. And in particular, in 2006, we went to Leningrad, to St. Petersburg, with her to see her family who were still uh, living there, her, her grandparents and, um, and, and so on. Uh, you know, that, that um, it, it, or rather her, her brothers, rather, and parents and so on, that, that she, uh, you know, really opened up and started to describe it. And there was a vividness in the way that she opened up about it that was remarkable. And it's interesting, you know, when you look at this, uh, when you look at the the uh, uh, narratives of Holocaust survivors or survivors of uh, genocides in Rwanda or what have you, there are, you know, millions of people who can tell those stories. And in some ways, those stories are interchangeable. Some of them become iconic, like, say, Anne Frank's story or Malala's story, say. But um, the the narrative itself kind of coheres. Uh, at, at least, or or a couple of narratives cohere. You know, one of the things that's interesting about like the the siege of Leningrad is that um, although people in the West tend to know nothing about it, um, you know, we often confuse it with the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, that in the in the East, in the former Soviet republics, the siege of Leningrad is remembered as having, you know, it it puts Gallipoli in the shade, right? It 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 puts um, it's 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 uh. Its centrality can't be overstated. I mean, it was the largest ever die-off within a city in the history of the human race, um, and you know the it 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 involved the most incredible bravery and perseverance, and also the most incredible cruelty and mismanagement, and uh, and and the stories each of them are amazing. And so I expect that in the future we might have a bunch of different narratives. And I think people in the global south, for example, are going to have a very different story about this. Uh, than those of us in the in in you know developed rich nations um and uh and i think that people who experience the loss of their loved ones due to uh, obvious mismanagement you know like like uh, right-wing pastors who advise their flock to continue gathering because they're washed in the blood of christ that oh, the yeah. children of the people murder yeah the, the children of the murder people murdered by those pastors We'll have a very different way of thinking about this to those of us who lost someone distant or who lost someone to a more random uh, happenstance. We don't know how they got it or maybe they got it at the grocery store or what have you. Well, as we speak, um, the global infection total is 1,979,853 uh, and we're still yet to see it go through, I suppose, um, South America and Africa. Um, so also we yeah. have terrible statistics. That's the known <laughs> count, right? That's yeah, not the uh, count. 
No, no, I think it's five days behind as well, effectively, what has the, the data lag is right. of, you know, potentially known cases as well. But it's it's five days behind and also also woefully incomplete. Even if it were up to date, it would be woefully incomplete because we don't have randomized testing, right? LA, LA County, we're going to start doing, um, we're using a, uh, there's a polling agency that builds these statistically representative sample groups, and they're going to start doing a thousand ser- serological tests every fortnight here, which is a much more rigorous way of tracking the spread than, uh, than, than the selection bias we have, where people who are tested are either rich or sick. And when does that start? Uh, it starts this week, I believe. Right. Uh, and they've got funding. They've got something like, it's not much money, $1.1 million to do eight weeks worth of fortnightly tests. Well, imagine what that's going to throw up, particularly after I think Iceland said that f- half half of cases are asymptomatic as well. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the question, right? I mean... Do we until we get an, an asymptomatic count, then we don't we don't have the denominator, right? Unless we have the denominator, we don't know the lethality, the virulence. I suppose a question that might be sort of a little bit uh, closer to home or might be quite easy to answer, or perhaps quite difficult, um, is question six: If you were to write a book, film, or TV series about the global pandemic, what would you call it? Uh, well, I wouldn't because there's going to be a million books like that. It, it, <laughs> yes. it, it would be very tedious. <laughs> What would I call it? I would call it, um, I don't know, the Decameron. There's a good title. Okay. You know, it's Bo- Bo- Boccaccio's, Boccaccio's play about 10 people hunkered down during the Black Death who spend 10 days telling 10 stories. When the pandemic broke, I was already working on a utopian post-Green New Deal novel, but the protagonist of that story uh, is an orphan whose parents were killed by a zoonotic plague. Uh you know, it's t- 10 years before the story starts. So, I mean, it's on people's minds. Question seven, what should we be paying attention to now that will affect life after the pandemic? Anything that, that takes your fancy? Well, I think that uh, the demographic differences are the are probably going to be the things that are most salient in terms of how we reflect on our uh how this how this pandemic reflects on our future or or is cast forward into our future and you think about the the long shadow cast by things like the wars and the depression on how people voted and viewed the world uh you know young people are are having a markedly different experience of this as are racialized people um, you know, in the United States, the, the death rate among um, African-Americans and other racialized people is much higher than the death rate uh, among uh, white people. Uh, and so, you know, there, there will be a very um, long shadow cast by that, you know, and in, in uh, the U.S., there is uh, both undertreatment and underutilization of the healthcare system by African Americans, and there are lots of factors to that, including the privatization of U.S. healthcare. But even where it's available, it is um, statistically underutilized, and some of the explanation for that is the Americans' shameful history of performing non-consensual medical experiments on African Americans, notably the Tuskegee Airmen experiment where African-Americans were secretly and deliberately infected with syphilis for 40 years and left untreated uh, to infect their loved ones and so on. Uh, And um, this creates a kind of institutional mistrust. And, you know, here we have, again, the healthcare system failing African-Americans in ways that are, um, you know, difficult to even wrap your head around unless you're living through them. And even then, probably you're too close to it to understand how widespread and systemic it is. And um, 
you know, I expect that the demographic factors are going to be really dispositive. Um, grim. That, uh, yeah. Well, oh. yeah, but, you know, I mean, this is the thing is that we are learning what it means to corrupt an institution because we tend to think of the problem of corrupting an institution as being merely that it is ineffectual. But what it actually does is it robs it of the credibility that it needs to be effectual when we, when, when it is most urgently needed. You know, if, if the, it's one thing for your drugs regulator to just turn a blind eye to the Sackler family and allow them to kill millions of people with dangerous opioids and trumped up research. Um, and that's bad, right? But th that's actually just the proximate visible harm. The long-term harm is it discredits the idea of evidence-based medicine, right? It discredits the idea that you can trust that something is safe because the regulator told you so. And then what you have is the president of the United States being every bit as credible as the FDA when he says everyone should drink fishbowl cleaner and the FDA is saying no one should drink fishbowl cleaner. Do you see it sort of swinging the other way though? Because so, Is there a chance it could swing the other way so that people would rally around effective government where you've got governors doing a, a reasonably good job in contrast to a federal level administration? Well... Yes and no, right? It is true that we're seeing these ad hoc alliances like in the, the Northeast Corridor and the West Coast states in the United States have uh, created their own uh, regional alliances with a kind of regional coordinated, uh, with a regional coordinated governance system that it, they say they're going to ignore what the, what the federal government says. So the governors, I forget if, is it, is it governors in Australia? It is, right? In the states? We have premiers. But premiers, still a federalist like, system. Like, like Canada, right. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the governors here have said that they are um, going to disregard federal advice and that instead they're going to convene uh, their own ad hoc regional governance um, system and that they will take their own advice. Uh, they will act on their own advice without regard to what the federal government says is safe. And, you know... It's easy to view that as a kind of with a bit of Schadenfreude and say, "Aha! Well, the federal government has squandered its uh, its capital, uh, but at least like the smart states are gonna are gonna do the smart thing." But you know, for th this has lots of negative outcomes, right? So one, of course, is that like the the U.S. is um, it, it doesn't it doesn't have closed borders between those states, and and epidemiology doesn't care about uh, regionality. Right. People in Arizona can cross into California and vice versa. So, you know, the fact that the fact that California might have conceived of its own uh, regulatory regime doesn't insulate it from bad regulatory choices in its neighbors. But, you know, even more so if 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 you or someone you love lives in a in a um, red state, a so-called red state, they are deprived of the best evidence. Right. They are they're, you know, forced to to live with whatever it is, their dumb, dumb, you know, dominionist, uh, 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 you know, religion-addled, uh, uh, evidence-free governance demands of them. And that's actually kind of a one-two punch, right? Because on the one hand, you have um, these open borders with your neighboring states that allow um, pandemics to cross from one region to the next. And on the other hand, the other regions are allowed to are, are given free reign to have as bad policy as they want. You know, if California can have as good policy as it wants, then Arizona can have as bad policy as it wants. And and so, you know, that's a that's a real problem. I mean, it's it's the it's the zoning problem writ large where, you know, if you say, well, 
uh, it would be nice if the people who were, um, you know, smart and thoughtful didn't have to go to a city planning office to decide what they, uh, what they could do to their homes. But, um, the corollary of that is that their idiotic neighbors get to pile up oily rags on the property line. You know, it, 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 it really produces a very, very bad outcome for everyone around. And so, you know, there, there really isn't a substitute for, or, or a sustainable substitute for strong institutions. We can talk about how to balance federal, uh, and regional powers and, and what the, the best way to, to balance those out is. But that's not what we're engaged in. We're not engaged in a rebalancing. We're engaged in a kind of ad hoc territorial, uh, uh, battle. And, um, you know, that's not good. Uh, it, it doesn't end well for anyone, at least not in the short term. Maybe, maybe the lessons learned from it are so intense that we, we salvage some sense of why we do need good, strong federal, uh, government that is, that is evidence-based and, and, you know, of, of high quality and diligent and not for sale. But, um, you know, if anything, taking all the good states, the states with, with, uh, good governance out, uh, all that does is actually, you know, reduces the homeostatic pressure that stops bad states from dominating policy choices and uh, and creating bad governance all around. And of course, California has proven time and again that it doesn't always get it right. See previously selling off our, our $200 million stockpile of uh, coronavirus supplies so that <laughs> we can save $5 million a year on our uh, on our, our budgets. Quite apparent now. Would have been useful, I suppose, but uh, long gone. Yeah, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Thank you so much for your time. It's It's been insightful. And in one part, making predictions, maybe rather examining scenarios is a better way to go. So thanks. Oh, cheers. My pleasure. Links to the myriad of topics covered this episode. Check the episode notes where you're listening on your podcast app and Corey's website, craphound.com. Check him out there. And if you're enjoying post-pandemic, please leave a review where you're listening. If you can, get in touch if you'd like to suggest a topic or a guest as well. Hello at postpandemic.xyz. Post-Pandemic is hosted by me, Courtney Carthy. Production is by Neely Media. Cover artwork by Studio Baker. And our theme music was created by Alex Shulgan. <laughs>